Welcome to Rule of Law Talk, a podcast series of the World Justice Project designed to share the latest learning about the rule of law, what it is, how it works, and how we can strengthen it. My name is Elizabeth Anderson. I'm the Executive Director of the World Justice Project, and I'll be your host for today's Rule of Law Talk. for today's rule of law talk is the right of peaceful assembly and new guidance issued this week by the UN Human Rights Committee on this topic. The UN's new guidance comes at a critical moment with protest movements on the rise across the globe and many countries grappling with the appropriate response, something that has become even more complicated with the COVID-19 pandemic and public health restrictions on large gatherings. To help us understand what international human rights law says about these issues, I'm delighted to have as our guest, Professor Christoph Haynes of the University of Pretoria. Professor Haynes is a leading expert on the international human rights law. He is one of the 18 members of the UN Human Rights Committee that issued the new guidance this week and he served as the committee's rapporteur responsible for preparing the guidance that's been issued. Welcome, Christoph, and thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks for having me, Vicky. Let's start with the basics. Um, can you tell our listeners briefly about the UN Human Rights Committee? What is it, who's on it, and what is your role? Very good. Yes. So um, the UN has a number of human rights mechanisms, and uh, one of the main parts is really the treaty system. So there are 10 treaties and treaty bodies um, that monitor these particular treaties. And so we are responsible for, for the covenant on civil and political rights as the Human Rights Committee. Um, and we, uh, for those states that have accepted this, we hear individual communications. People who have gone to the highest court in their country can approach us. Um, and also we do state reports. Um, and in the third place, we do general comments. Um, and so this is the 37th general comment that the committee has adopted. And that is really then uh, aimed to be a um, authoritative interpretation of a particular aspect of the treaty, typically a right. And so in this particular case, we focused on the right of peaceful assembly. Okay, great. And so this, New interpretive guidance or general comment, as you all call them, it elaborates uh, the committee's understanding of Article 21 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Um, and there are 173 countries, as I uh, understand it, who signed up to that treaty and um, agreed to abide by um, its terms. Just so everyone knows what we're talking about, um, let me read Article 21 of the treaty. It states, the right of peaceful assembly shall be recognized. No restrictions may be placed on the exercise of this right other than those imposed in conformity with the law and which are necessary in a democratic society in the interests of national security or public safety, public order, the protection of public health or morals, or the protection of the rights and freedoms of others. So that's it, seems pretty, um, short and sweet and simple, and yet there's, of course, lots to be interpreted in all of those words. And so that's um, 
what your uh, committee has been working on. You don't all uh, issue guidance on the treaty all that often. This is, as you say, only the 37th time that the committee has issued a general comment since the treaty came into force in the mid 70s. So why did you decide to take up this issue now? Yes, so our, our previous general comment was on the right to life and before that on personal security, before that freedom of expression. Um, those things took typically two years or in the case of the last one, four years to adopt. Um, I think what, what interested uh, us in the, the right of peaceful assembly is that it brings together a lot of issues. So it brings together Article 21, the one that you've read, which says that one has this right. Um, but also uh, many of the other rights. Um, so one's right against ill treatment um, under Article 7, uh, one's right of privacy, um, also right against discrimination, um, political participation, freedom of movement. Um, so all those things come together because with peaceful assemblies, um, it's really uh, at the, at the um, intersecting the cutting edge of tensions between states and the population. Um, and so many things can go right in those cases, so there can be new changes, you can renegotiate the social contract, but many things can go wrong as well, and that leaves deep scars in society when it goes wrong. Um, so it is an important social phenomenon that um, in the last 50 years or so, many of the major changes that the world has seen, the social changes, came about because of peaceful assembly. Um, this is really a, a, a relatively new phenomenon. So uh, the, the end of um, de facto racial discrimination in the U.S., um, women's suffrage, um, the end of apartheid, um, the end of Soviet-style communism in 89, um, the anti-war demonstrations, uh, pro-environment, um, the Arab Spring. So many changes come about because of this, um, and it's important that there is a, a sort of a set of rules uh, for, for, of engagement sort of rules for the, uh, of the game um, in the sense that, that both sides or all sides involved, um, that they know what to expect from each other and also uh, what they, what they uh, can do themselves. Um, and, and so when we finished the general comment on the right to life, we then looked at uh, various aspects of the covenant, such as the uh, right to privacy. Um, and that's, of course, an important right as well. Um, in the end, we decided to go with this particular one. In both cases, technology plays a big role. And, and of course, then the challenge is previously, um, in the case of, of peaceful assemblies, for example, one did not really have all the less lethal weapons that we have today. Um, one didn't have the there's intersection between privacy and peaceful assembly as well. So one didn't have the possibility of state surveillance on the scale that we have today. Uh, one didn't have drones that could be used to, uh, to to do crowd control, um, and so technology played a big role. Um, it does play as far as, as privacy is concerned. I think the committee would need to look at that at some point. But I think we felt uh, that we need to provide some guidance, give some content. As you know, the states, and as you mentioned, uh, the states, uh, 173 of them are bound by the covenant itself, but the provision is, is, is very short. Um, and so the idea is to give content to that uh, so that one knows what are the international standards on that. Understood, and, and uh, it's interesting to think about it as this real nexus of, of so many human rights issues bound up in this issue of assembly. As I understand it, it's also been uh, an area of personal interest and study for you over many years. 
Yes, yes, indeed. So, so I'm from South Africa, as you know, um, grew up here and studied here. Um, and so in the 1980s, state of emergency, the, the height of apartheid, um, things were changing in our country. Uh, and the most visible part I saw of the struggle was really the rolling mass action of the time. And so I did my doctorate on civil disobedience in South Africa. Uh, it was also interesting to see Gandhi and how he started this whole new phenomenon in South Africa. He had his own philosophy about it, um, but uh, it was really here where it started. And then, of course, he used it in India and so forth. Um, so for me as a South African, it was interesting to understand the history, um, but it was also interesting to understand the politics of what I saw around me and trying to understand what are the what are the standards. At the time, it was not really that much developed. Um, so there was a lot of philosophy and domestic law on it. Um, but so over time, uh, more and more international standards have developed. And then I served as a rapporteur on executions for the UN uh, between 2010 and 2016. And uh, the first report I had to write was within a month or two after my appointment. And I thought, why do I know anything about that I can you know, at least hope to say something new? And so this was indeed demonstrations. This was end of 2010, and then the Arab Spring started in January 2011. And I thought, okay, well, this makes it relevant. And the Human Rights Council picked up on that and then uh, appointed myself and the, and the new rapporteur on assembly was appointed, Maina Kiai from Kenya, and they appointed us to work for three years on um, a joint report between the two mandates on the management of assembly. So, yes, it's been an interest of mine for a long time. And it remains a very um, current topic, of course. Uh, I, I note the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace has a, a protest tracker where they're tracking major protest movements around the world. And since 2017, they've tracked 100 major protest movements, um, almost 30 of which have actually brought down governments or, or ousted leaders. So uh, it seems to be quite an important political phenomenon in the world today. It's true that Peaceful Assembly um, has brought about uh, change of government. If one thinks about Sudan, um, Algeria, even uh, the butcher of the Balkans, Slobodan Milosevic. Um, so there have been changes of government. Um, but I would not jump from those statistics to the idea that 30% of the um, of the uh, demonstrations lead to changes of government. If I think about my own country, uh, there are around 12,000 uh, demonstrations per year that are registered, and, and none of them bring about a, a change of government. Um, and in many countries around the world, there are, are, are incidences of peaceful assembly, ranging from, in the extreme cases, change of government, uh, but in many other cases, changes of policy, changes of emphasis, uh, also um, acceptance of new norms such as uh, gay rights, for example, um, and many of those those changes that do not necessarily uh, entail a full change of, of, of government. Um, there's there's a, a very interesting study that was done. This is not our own study, um, but some two or three years ago, um, where Chenoway and Stephen looked at uh, demonstrations, and they say that peaceful assemblies are twice as successful in terms of bringing about change in comparison with violent um, uh, uh, resistance. Um, and also that in the longer term, 
um, the likelihood of having violence is much smaller if the transition is relatively peaceful. So I think those things are interesting. Uh, and yes, sometimes it leads to changes of government. Um, but the way we define peaceful assemblies, even in this general comment, it includes um, political assemblies, and of course that is important, um, but uh, social gatherings for recreational purposes, music, cultural, religious, uh, all those things are peaceful assemblies. Um, it's essentially the act where more than one person gather together um, for a particular purpose, not when they stand in line to catch a bus or something like that, but for a particular purpose. That is what we see from human rights uh, committee's point of view, and I think most international bodies see that as a as a peaceful assembly, and it's it's been a way of renegotiating the social contract in many cases. So it's really uh, a feature of a healthy democracy, it sounds like. Um, and I was struck in the general comment, the observation that it can be a very important tool, particularly for communities that have been marginalized or excluded in society uh, to express themselves and to participate and to um, ha have input on, on policy. So that's uh, an important dimension. Why don't you um, tell us what some of the most important uh, elements of the new guidance are? What, what should be our, our main takeaways from this general comment? Yeah, I think the underlying idea is that, that uh, um, peaceful assemblies are a legitimate uh, use of the public and, and other spaces. Um, if one thinks on a, on a, on a very sort of uh, practical level, um, streets are used for vehicles, but they're also used for marathons and for markets and so forth, and they closed off um, on, or say, on a Saturday or whatever the case may be for that purpose. And peaceful assemblies are like these other um, social uh, gatherings um, are a legitimate use um, of of of, uh, of the space. So a number of domestic courts, Spain and Israel and others, have said it's not just for um, circulation, the public space, but it's also for participation. Um, and I like that quote, even in the translation, it it, it comes across. Um, so that's the underlying sort of idea. It's as you say, part of democracy. Um, it is, I think, uh, uh, also part of the, what the general comment, uh, uh, the message of the general comment is that it's an individual right. Um, so one should not in the first place think about the entire assembly and is it violent or is it not, or should, if there's damage, should, you know, uh, that, that everybody's responsible, it's the individual. And even if there are some individuals in a larger group, uh, who are in an isolated way engaged in violence, um, this cannot be attributed to the group as a whole. Every individual has that right. So as far as possible, they should be treated as individuals. Um, I think also the, the underlying philosophy is to say that um, the right of peaceful assembly should be treated by uh, and, and dealt with by the authorities in a content-neutral way. Um, so the idea is even if um, those who are engaging in assemblies or your political opponents, or you don't like that particular message for whatever reason, um, that that they are allowed to do so. So it's in principle content neutral. There may be some exceptions, and maybe we can talk about that. But in principle, it's content neutral, um, and so people should be allowed also to exercise this right within sight and sound of their target. So by doing that, they demonstrate to others uh, that they feel strongly enough about this to have gathered around this. Um, but they also, for themselves, see 
what is the support that they have? So if you organize an assembly and you think you're going to have a million people and it's only yourself and, and, and the other person who organized it who, who, who pitched up, um, that's a message to yourself about the, um, the popularity and the support for your idea. And in fact, Gandhi had this idea of what he did as experiments with truth. And I think to some extent that's true for peaceful assemblies. It's a way of testing ideas and then seeing what is the response, putting your toe in the water, putting up a balloon, however one wants to see it, um, but you put it out in the public domain. Um, and in many cases, this can diffuse a situation. So uh, the, the society as a whole take note and they internalize this, that there are people who feel very strongly about this, and then they can do something about it. So it's almost the, the idea of, um, it's a, it's a release of pressure, of course, um, but it's almost the, the idea also um, of, of, of um, precaution that people can take note in advance. Even if I'm not persuaded now, uh, I know that these people feel like that and I can do something about it instead of it blowing up into a massive problem. So it, um, the guidance covers a, a wide range of topics. I can imagine it was um, uh, sometimes a, a heated debate among your 18 um, members of the committee. Tell us a little bit about the process by which you um, developed um, the comment. Yes, and I think it's important to emphasize that we decided three years ago already to do this. Um, so it was before COVID and before Black Lives Matter. Of course, that makes it much more relevant now. Um, but uh, the idea was already there and the decision was taken two years ago. And then it becomes a very inclusive process. Um, it's the first time that I see such a process for myself from the beginning to the end. So as a rapporteur, for example, I was used to sit in my study and write my own uh, report and go and see whoever I want to see, and you are responsible for it. Um, in this particular case, we announced publicly that we're going to do this. We invited everybody who's interested, and I think about 40 or so made submissions and came to uh, address us. Um, we meet three times a year in Geneva um, when it's possible in person now these days online. Um, but they came to address us when we started, and then I drafted the first uh, 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 general comment um, and distributed it to my colleagues. And so it was at the time 114 paragraphs, and we then uh, took uh, the, the year to go through this paragraph by paragraph and word by word, sentence by sentence. Um, and then it became the a document of the committee. Uh, this was in English, and then we translated it into Spanish and French and published it um, and, and invited comments from states and from um, civil society, academics, international organizations. And uh, we got 24 states uh, responses in, I think, all the UN languages, um, including uh, uh, three of the member states of the um, uh, permanent members of the Security Council. Um, and, and, and also people who specialize in this particular field. So then we took it again paragraph by paragraph and we looked at the, um, as a committee, I presented this to the committee and said, okay, this is what our paragraph said. These are the comments that we received and these are my proposals. And then my colleagues, of course, come in. Um, and in the end, one then reached a consensus um, on, on what these paragraphs should entail. In some cases, we put it in square brackets and came back and so forth. Um, but we had also uh, uh, regional consultations in, for example, in Mexico and in Thailand, in Poland, in Johannesburg, 
Um, we had a, a weekend uh, expert meeting um, on the question of online assemblies. Um, so, so people came to Cambridge and we then addressed this question whether peaceful assemblies um, should also cover um, online assemblies as well, not just the preparation for an actual assembly, but if nobody ever meets in person, the Me Too movement, for example, is that protected by the right of peaceful assembly? And I can say for myself, initially I was I was skeptical about it. Um, and uh, but as as far as 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 we went further, uh, I became more and more convinced that many of the interactions that previously were held in person now take place online, and one would be missing a very large part if one does not recognize that peaceful assemblies can take place online as well. So we got to the conclusion that peaceful assemblies can take place indoors, outdoors, online, offline, in public spaces and in private spaces. Um, so it's a very broad definition of peaceful assembly, which then the next step is then what are the obligations of the state? And then in the, in, 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 in the next step after that is then also to ask when may it be restricted because the right of peaceful assembly is, is it can be restricted as well. It's not a recipe for anarchy, um, but what are the conditions under which it can actually be restricted? Great. So uh, I, I guess it, it's um, it's an ambitious um, project you undertook here and covers a lot of ground and, and lots of, of standards and and recommendations entailed. I, I think it's interesting to think about how that all plays out in a concrete um, setting. And so you mentioned the Black Lives Matter movement and, and current um, protests, particularly here in the United States where I'm from. I'd be interested um, if you can share with our listeners how you see the committee's guidance helping us evaluate um, the response to that protest movement here in the United States, what's appropriate, what's not? Well, I think a number of the, um, of the themes of the general comment um, are relevant in the United States and, and other societies now as well. So the starting point uh, that uh, this individual right, uh, if there are members of a particular group of an assembly who are engaging in violence, this cannot be attributed to all members, and so this should be targeted interventions. In some cases, interventions are, are needed, uh, not only permitted, but actually required if there are if there's danger to the lives of people, for example, uh, to property. The state has a duty to protect, uh, but that should be targeted as far as possible to the individuals concerned. Um, I think the other overriding issue is the one of de-escalation. Um, so there are two approaches. One is um, is is, is uh, to escalate the situation um, and to to show a superior force, so to speak, um, and and that of course results in in the, if that's done by the state, it results in the other side also trying to show superior force and it escalates. Um, but the police themselves, but also the politicians, have a duty of de-escalation. Um, and to accommodate, to tolerate some level of disruption um, and to work towards uh, uh, preventing um, the situation from, from, uh, from getting out of hand and not from escalating. Perhaps more particular, um, the general comment also focuses on the use of military um, st staff to do law enforcement. 
Um, and I think much of that applies to paramilitary as well, that this is highly exceptional. Uh, and so we don't say this can never be done. Um, but if it's done under exceptional circumstances, if there's no other way of doing it, um, it should be on a temporary basis, and those who are involved must have the necessary training, including the human rights training, because, of course, the training of police and, and military staff differs very much. Um, and then in, in the last place also, um, that if the military is responsible for law enforcement, that they are bound by human rights standards. They are not bound by some other kinds of standards. So the same standards that apply to law enforcement, ordinary law enforcement officials, to the police. Um, there's also the issue of plainclothes police officers and um, the, the question of wearing identification. And the general comment emphasizes that law enforcement officials must wear clear identification. This is important for, for accountability purposes. If plainclothes police are used, and again, it's not completely excluded, it may in some cases be the only way to have a targeted intervention. But if it's done, um, this, uh, before they use any force or arrest anybody, they have to identify themselves. Um, so I think a, a number of the, of the, uh, the general um, uh, uh, provisions of the general comment are applicable to some of the sort of situations that one sees in the news these days. The, uh, the, the general comment also uh, makes reference to the guidance on less lethal weapons uh, that you had worked on when you were Special Rapporteur on Executions, and uh, certainly um, some of the very detailed recommendations there about different kinds of law enforcement tools would seem re uh, relevant to the unfolding situation here in the United States and elsewhere, of course. Yes. So, so um, this guidance was issued by the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights uh, about four weeks ago. So it's the UN Human Rights Guidance on these lethal weapons in law enforcement. Um, so this is parallel to what the Human Rights Committee did on peaceful assemblies in general. Uh, there's this uh, guidance that, that focuses in particular on these lethal weapons. And yes, so in 2014, when I was uh, Special Rapporteur on Executions, um, it struck me that the basic principles on the use of force and firearms of 1990, um, they were written at the time when the technology was really not very developed. Um, th th these less lethal weapons, they still talked about non-lethal weapons, um, and they basically talked about firearms, and a large part of it is, is, is specifically about the use of firearms. So that's a very important document, but it gives no details on, on what we call today less lethal weapons. Um, and of course, of course, we know that um, less lethal weapons are often lethal. Um, but in addition to that, they often misused, even if they're not used to in, in a lethal way. Um, but they are used uh, much more easily than firearms, for example. And so, the use of tear gas today, one can see that tear gas is used in many societies almost beyond the point of saturation. Um, and so, if you add all of that up. Um, then one finds that the tear gas, for example, and basically for weapons in general, um, that the collective effect of that is a high level of, re of repression. And so we developed a, we, for about three years or so, um, I worked with people from police and, and, and uh, international lawyers and so on um, to develop uh, guidance on these lethal weapons, and that should be read together then with the basic principles of 1990. It's sort of a specialized aspect, and then in the new guidance of the Human Rights Committee, we simply refer to that, so we don't have the we didn't have the room to set out all the, all those rules in detail. 
Excellent. And and the um, some of the some of the litigation that's been brought about um, the uh, protests and and the response in Portland, Oregon, for example, um, relate to the treatment of volunteer medics who are there uh, to provide uh, help to protesters who may be injured. Uh, what do the what does the general comment say about that uh, question? Yes, so, so the general comment has a section on people who monitor, um, who do not necessarily participate in peaceful assemblies themselves. So journalists, for example, uh, human rights defenders, um, and I think in that broader category, one can include um, medical uh, personnel as well. Um, and it makes the point that these people are protected under the covenant uh, itself. Um, so even if the right of peaceful assembly, Article 21, is no longer applicable. Um, and if a demonstration has turned violent, and we define that as a as an assembly where there is widespread and serious, both of them, widespread and serious violence, um, even in such a case, if it's lawful to disperse the assembly um, and the authorities can tell the participants to go home, um, then the the monitors, the journalists, and the and the uh, and, and those who are uh, uh, the National Human Rights Commission and so forth, um, they still have the right to monitor and and to to provide assistance uh, then as well. So they are protected under the covenant as a whole. I see. Now help me understand this um, question uh, of when an assembly turns violent. Of course, when when an assembly is or or somebody who is participating in an assembly is violent then it's no longer a peaceful assembly they no longer are exercising a right of a peaceful assembly so i would assume are not protected under the covenant but how does the the committee suggest that we think about violence in this context in in the case of portland for example those defending the the government response there have argued that uh, some of the protesters um, have turned violent, they're lighting fires, they're threatening a federal property. Um, how should we think about uh, the right of peaceful assembly in that kind of a context? Yeah, and there's no doubt that the state has a, 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 the right and the obligation in, some, in, in, in extreme cases to act against those who use such violence. In some cases, it may be better not to immediately uh, act, but then to later see where the prosecution should be brought. Uh, but if somebody's life is in danger or, or uh, serious violence, uh, uh, damage to property, um, that, that, that is within the powers and the, and the duties of the state to interfere. But as far as possible, it should be aimed at those who are responsible um, and not be attributed to, to the group as a well. whole. Only if the violence, the actual violence, is serious and widespread. Um, it, it, it affects the, the, the gathering itself. Um, but there's also a situation where violence has not actually materialized yet, and we, we, in this particular case, talking about physical violence. It's not structural violence and that kind of thing. It's physical violence against the, uh, the body of the person involved or, or the psyche, um, but physical violence. Um, in, in, in cases where violence hasn't materialized, there are three instances where the situation can be deemed to be violent. So if there's incitement of violence, and whether there's intention, there's proof that there's the intention of violence, and also um, where violence is imminent. So even if it hasn't occurred yet, um, it can be deemed to be violent. And if that's manifesting widespread as well, 
this may be attributed to the group as well. I think what often goes wrong is that there is violence, and it's the kind of violence that the state can and should act against, um, but then the reaction is excessive in the sense that the entire group is affected or that uh, the individuals concerned uh, that the violence against them is excessive. It should never be punitive. Um, if somebody's arrested, for example, as soon as that person has been subdued, for example, uh, is, is handcuffed, um, then the violence should stop. The force, the use of force should stop because it's no longer necessary in that case. So the whole idea that violence must be necessary, the minimum uh, that is required under the circumstances, it must be proportionate um, to the objective that is pursued. Um, I think those are the important elements. I see. I, I would imagine that those are, in practice, uh, challenging judgments for law enforcement or others who are uh, managing a situation like this to make. And yes. uh, it would seem that training uh, would be a, a particularly important element of, of effective management of these situations. Yeah, no, training is very important. Um, it's, it's, I think training and equipment are two, uh, are two elements of this broader emphasis that we also have in the general comment on precaution. It's no good waiting for the last minute where maybe a particular police officer is isolated, surrounded by, by, a, by a crowd, and then action has to be taken. That, that situation shouldn't arise in the first place, so you have to go upstream. And in the same way, one has to go upstream with training, um, that people are not overwhelmed, and also with equipment, um, so that less lethal weapons are available and proper training on those less lethal weapons are there. Um, but it's impossible in the international document to um, to identify exactly what should be done in every situation. So the training for the officers is important, but also the possibility of a recourse to courts um, afterwards is important. So that domestic decision-making must be taken uh, because we've got these broad notions of widespread and serious and so forth, um, but it has to be applied on a case-by-case -case basis um, to, the, to the issue in question. Um, and it's also impossible for a state in advance uh, to say that uh, we have a blanket uh, a rule on, on assemblies. It may never take place or you may never uh, uh, do this um, in this particular city or whatever the case may be. That always has to be taken on a case-by-case on a -case basis. Um, and so we give the, the, the general standards, but then it has to be interpreted locally. I see. Um, do you have any examples of countries that are getting this right, um, where they've followed the approach that the committee is advocating in this general comment, and, and we've seen a good outcome uh, as a result? Yes, I, I, I think it's difficult to say that one particular country always has it wrong and one particular country always has it right. Um, and certainly it's not my role as an individual member of the Human Rights Committee to, to, to judge uh, countries specifically. Um, but I can certainly say that um, from a number of countries, um, we, we established, and I think this started in the Netherlands, in, in Rotterdam, uh, that they have what they call the safety triangle. So it's a communication triangle between the police, the politicians, and the participants. Um, and my own country, South Africa, for example, has it in its laws. Many other countries have it as well, is that if there's going to be a, a, an assembly, they have to be in touch with each other, get each other's cell phone number, and so on. So for example, if, if the uh, march goes down a street, and now they take a street that 
the police didn't expect they can find out what is going on. Is it a sinister move or is it perhaps something else that has happened? So there's communication established. Um, and so many countries have that. Um, we were also um, addressed, in fact, by, by the city of Amsterdam, and they often, on, uh, on the square, the dam uh, in Amsterdam, they often have at least uh, six assemblies going on at the same time. Um, Northern Ireland, for example, they don't even require notification. Um, the police say they use the internet and, and uh, they see advertisements and so on. So in many cases, they see their role as, as facilitating, and that's the term used in the journal comment, um, is to make it possible. There's a negative obligation on the state not to unduly interfere, but there's also obligation to facilitate and to protect. Um, and so um, in many cases, they see their role as, as uh, facilitating, um, and, and, and those are also examples that we that we, uh, that we that we took to heart and I think that one can point to. Uh, that's really interesting. I, I was struck in the general comment with the idea that even restrictions on the right of assembly should be approached with, uh, uh, the, with the spirit of facilitating assembly um, and that there are limits on, on restrictions with that, um, that spirit in mind. Yeah, and, and a lot of the, um, of the general comment is about uh, stating what is the normal position, but then there are exceptions. But it's very important, of course, what one sees as the default position, and then exceptions have to be justified. So the default position is that assemblies and this very wide interpretation of the scope of assembly have to be allowed. Um, and often that's enough. If the if the if the state doesn't interfere with it, um, undue interference with it, that's often enough. The negative obligation, but in some cases, a positive obligation is also to facilitate, for example, to cordon off the streets or to to divert the traffic, uh, but also to protect if uh, members of a particular group, say a minority group, as you mentioned at the beginning. Um, they are demonstrating and then they are attacked by members of the public or a counter demonstration. They have to be protected. Um, and so, so restrictions have to be justified because the normal position is to allow assemblies to take place. Um, but, but restrictions may be imposed. There's no unlimited right of, of peaceful assembly, um, but there must be good reasons for the restrictions. Well, it's, uh, it's incredibly helpful. Uh, contribution to uh, human rights and rule of law that the committee has articulated. Um, this guidance is much to to learn from here and to bring clarity to this really important um, practice in, in democratic society. So congratulations and thank you for this extraordinary effort over the last couple of years. I guess maybe in closing, can you tell our listeners where they can learn more about the committee, the general comment, the, uh, the guidance on, on non-lethal uh, weapons and, and other issues that we've talked about today. Certainly. So um, the new general comment will be released tomorrow, 29 July, Wednesday, around noon, and it will be on the website of the Human Rights Committee. So the UN Office of the High Commission of Human Rights hosts the, uh, the website of the Human Rights Committee, and there you will find both the new general comment and also the less lethal weapons guidance. Um, I should also mention that there are two websites um, that we developed, not in the UN, but at the University of Pretoria, where I am, 
um, to um, keep track of the domestic laws. Um, so there's one website, uh, www.rightofassembly.info, uh, uh, um, where we have the domestic laws of all the countries in the world. And then there's another one, uh, www.policinglaw.info, where we have the laws on the use of force um, of all the countries uh, of, of the world. Um, and those are, I think, good starting points uh, because ultimately the, these international standards, I think, are, are, are guidelines and they give content to the right on the international level. But the first line of defense is the domestic level. So if things are done properly on the domestic level, lives are saved, um, it's possible for people to diffuse situations, um, it's possible for democracy to take its, its course. Um, if things go wrong on the, on the domestic level, it takes a very long time before it reaches us on the international level. So it's very important that these international standards are translated to the domestic level, and that will be the ultimate uh, um, uh, test of this general comment as well whether it's reflected in the domestic laws. Many countries already have lots of these elements, um, but I think the, it's, 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 it's really a chain with a number of links, and all of them have to be in place, especially in these sort of high tense kind of situations where if one thing goes wrong, it can actually uh, cause quite a lot of damage. Well, uh, very good. I'm, I'm sure folks will be taking advantage of those resources, and, and thanks again for taking the time to uh, share uh, this this information and perspective um, with us and, and for the broader work over the last couple of years. Thanks, Vince. It's been a pleasure talking to you as well.